Hello, and welcome to another episode of Chatter, a podcast from The Gist, with me, Josh Hamilton. Matteo Bergamini, the founder of Shoutout UK, was our guest on today's show. We had a really fantastic conversation about the importance of teaching political literacy to school children, about censorship, the culture war, and giving young people both a voice and the right language to express themselves in politics. If you haven't already and you enjoyed this episode, please subscribe to this podcast and to our mailing list. And don't forget, my book, Brexit, The Establishment Civil War, is now available for pre-order on Amazon. You'll find the link in the description below. So here's Matteo Bergamini. Matteo, thanks for, for agreeing to, to come and chat to me on the show. It's a pleasure. No problem. Thanks for having me. No problem. Well... It's been it's been a, a strange few few months, hasn't it? Really, <laughs> it's a bit of an understatement. <laughs> I, uh, I I I still feels like a bit of a dream, to be honest. I kind of feel like I'm gonna wake up and be like, "Oh, there's we're not living for a pandemic. None of this was uh, was actually happening." Whereas now we've got to wear a mask to go to the shops, uh, or I should get a, a, a hundred pound fine, and there might be a second peak, which means we're gonna be inside for even longer. Mm. I mean, I'm less skeptical about the second peak because uh, people were, have been keep saying second wave about a lot of countries after they've opened up and there seems to be like a little blip, but but like nowhere near what, what people are expecting. So at least that's positive. Yeah, um, there's a silver lining in everything, mm, I guess. Hopefully it won't be locked up too much longer. But I don't, in Northern Ireland, have to wear a, a mask going into a shop just on public transport. <laughs> oh, you don't? <laughs> no. Lucky, lucky you. Yeah. Lucky you. Well... Yeah. Maybe lucky, depending on <laughs> depending on what it turns out. Yeah, I, well, I don't know. I guess I guess we we've had a lot a lot less tourism mm. and a lot less people going through the country, and just we've been less affected than than England because of that. Um, it's it, just one of the benefits of being a little island that people don't tend generally like travel through; they only go there, and it's not like like March in in Northern Ireland is peak tourism time. <laughs> <laughs> Like, like, I don't know if you've seen that. Like, it's what well, it feels like March today. It's grey and rainy, but oh, I mean here as well. Like we, we've got. I was. Uh, I just stepped outside earlier for a moment, and it is about to. Well, it looks like it's about to pour it down with rain. Um, to be fair, I think we've had about a four days of really beautiful sun here in London, and I think that's that's it for summer. And that's that's good. That's, that's good. That's a good summer for England. Yeah, I mean... Four nice sunny days. Four sunny days in a row. Some of them being over the weekend. Like, you know, it's nice. <laughs> oh. Well, if, if we keep talking about the weather, I'll get depressed. So um, <laughs> let's move on to much, much more fun things. So w- when would you say your first memory of understanding like what politics is and, and how much impact it has on the world is... Like where, where do you have like a, a set, like a, a moment where you suddenly realize like, oh, this is re- way more important than I previously thought, or this is, this is how the world is run, or is there, was there like a, a galvanizing moment for you? Um, I would, I wouldn't say there was one specific moment. There were a few that, um, kind of got me thinking a little bit, which, which kind of grew my interest in politics and, um, my my annoyance that politics isn't taught in schools and i remember when i was a, a kid quite a young kid i remember um when i was in italy um i saw all the adverts and um i heard obviously my parents and grandparents talking about the lira being replaced with the euro 
And obviously I had no idea what any of that meant at the time. But when I got a little bit older, that that memory always stuck with me for some reason, because it just shows that um, politics and government can change even the very thing you are, you know, using in your daily lives, uh, daily lives and all the rest of it. So that was that was quite a a moment, not in not at the time because I was too young, but a little bit later as kind of hindsight. And then I would say the bigger moment for me was um, tuition fees. Um, and I think for a lot of um, young people, especially young people that are, um, well, people that are of, of, of my age, um, when I remember being in A-levels and seeing, um, you know, the, the coalition happen and the coalition win, and then, um, you know, hearing about the pledge before that during the election and talking about how... Um, uh, was it Nick Clegg talking about how the one thing he wasn't going to do was 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 raise tuition fees and all the rest of it, and that, um, and then obviously that not happening, and in mm. fact, the, literally the opposite of 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 that of that pledge. Um, and I was lucky because I was the last year to get the old rates, ah. so people the year below me um, <laughs> were paying triple for the same degree. Um, but I remember I was I was planning to take a gap year after my A levels, um, and that completely changed my mind. I was like, "Well, there's no point because if I take a gap year, I'm paying triple than than what I was." And that for me was was the kind of second instance of seeing, well, you know, if you're not involved in politics, politics is still going to happen, um, and if you're not going to do it, it's going to do you. And if your voice isn't in the system, then you're most likely going to be the one that's getting. Um, how can I say this without swearing? Getting um, oh, don't worry about swearing. Like, I, I swear all the time on this podcast. Don't oh, worry. fantastic! <laughs> well, if you're not going to get involved in it, it's going to fuck you over, frankly. Um, and you know, young people in general, not always, but in general, are less likely to vote, less likely to engage. Um, and you know, tuition fees was a perfect example of the neg- negative implications of a section of society not engaging. Um, so for me, that was that was quite that was quite a hit. Because you, you'd invested a lot of obviously time and all the rest of it into into campaigning for that. A lot of young people did, and um, obviously the complete opposite happened. Um, so that for me was was one of the sort of defining moments showing why politics is so important. But it kind of latched onto um, another bit because I was always a little bit interested in politics, um, partly as, as um, thanks to my mum, who, as I mentioned, comes from from Italy. And um, because of the whole lira switch to the switch to the euro and just Italian politics in general, she liked talking about it. Never went, never went into it or did anything anything with it, um, but just liked talking about it. And that so I kind of garnered my interest. Um, but I realised that I couldn't learn about British politics in school, so I knew a bit about Italian politics. But being born in in, in the UK, studying in the UK, you can't learn a thing about British politics in the UK unless you are lucky enough, like I was, to do a po- uh, government politics A level, um, so it's like a combination of all these different things that that got me that got me interested in it. Mm. So what? How did you end up finding Shoutout UK? Like, what was your journey from from that like moment of, or those those like moments and things just changing in your head and going, oh right, okay, this is this is important to our lives and we have to be part mm. of it, or it's going to pass us by. Like, where did you go from there to ending up um, working at Shoutout? Um, so it, 
Uh, as I mentioned, it started off when I was in um, high school, that kind of growing interest. And then um, I was lucky enough to be in a college that offered it. So I took the subject, fell in love with, with government politics. Um, and that kind of grew my interest in it, but also grew my sort of lack of understanding of why is this stuff not being taught to us when we're earlier, when we're, when we're younger? And why did, why... Why is only a small section of society that that, that learns or that does government and politics get this kind of information? Um, so after I did my levels, I went to Brunel to study uh, politics and history. And whilst at university, I decided to set up a blog um, called Shout Out UK, where I just started writing about uh, issues that I cared about almost exclusively around the need for political literacy and why it's good for a democracy to teach its citizens how it's work how it works. Um, and it started to get a bit of interest. It started to get a bit of attraction. It started to have initially a couple of other young people from Brunel that um, asked if they could write on it as well. And it kind of grew from there as a blog with a variety of different authors. Um, and then eventually I, through a number of different contacts, managed to meet someone at um, AQA, the exam board. Um, and found out how to um, get Shout Out UK as an organization uh, accredited as a, a center to then deliver something called unit award statements, which gave me the opportunity to then learn about that and be able to create what eventually became our political literacy uh, program that we now run in, um, I think it's now over a thousand schools we've, we've run the program in, um, which is amazing. Um but it, it's kind of like trickle. So it started off as a as a blog with young people talking about this issue, and then it kind of grew into the the, the education platform essentially that it is that it is today. Um, coupled with that, we got um, I got quite lucky that quite early on in um, setting up Shout Out UK, um, I had this idea of creating a youth leaders debate because one of the things that I I had an issue with around especially British politics is that young people's voices tend not to be represented in any way, shape or form quite often. It's definitely gotten better since then. This is 2015 I'm talking about. Uh, I think it's definitely gotten better. It's not great, but it's definitely better than what it was. Um, and I had this idea of, well, all these political parties have youth wings, but the youth wing leaders never really get any airtime or do anything with them. So uh, me and a couple of the other uh, writers that were involved, the time decided to put together a, um, a debate with all of these leaders. So from the seven major parties that were that were around the UK at the time, and um, it was quite funny because initially we were just thinking of doing it as a sort of either as a Facebook Live thing or on YouTube or whatever else. And then we decided to just randomly uh, shoot an email off to Channel Four one day, um, just expecting nothing in return. Hmm. Um, we got a response back almost instantly asking for a meeting. So we thought, shit, okay, this is potentially realistic. Whoa. But still just being just being like, you know, this is not going to happen. This is just too good to be true. Meetings mean nothing, et cetera, et cetera. Anyway, it just went from one meeting after another. Then ITN, the production company, got involved. And in the end, it ended up happening. And we ended up getting the show on all four. Oh, really? For the 2015 election, which was insane. Um, I remember like being, I think it was 22 or 23 at the time sitting with um, these execs from Channel 4, ITN. Um, I had a bunch of um, security personnel that I had to organize to escort the audience because we had to have a live audience for the show. and all. It was just a surreal experience, but it was incredible. And it gave us the kind of springboard and the 
initial publicity to then expand and promote this program that we've that we then started running in in schools mm. um so that's how it kind of snowballed almost whilst i was at uni so uh when you say political literacy like mm. what do you what do you mean by like so does someone that's that's come in like from from a position where they don't understand like what shout out uk does and what you're trying to educate people about like what does political literacy mean to you and like what what do you cover in this course if you're going into schools like if say say you're um someone who's you know concerned about the the rise of pc culture do do you think that you know are you going in and teaching all these kids how to be like neo-marxists or <laughs> uh, <laughs> or neo-fascists right yeah um uh yeah and that's a fair i mean we, we, we get this a lot actually and it's um and it's interesting because it's like obviously teaching politics um is controversial um mm. i don't think it should be but it is um so the reason why we call it political literacy rather than political education is because political literacy think of um it's equivalent of being literate in a language when you are being literate in a language you are able to read and write in said language say english but doesn't mean you're going to be able to write i don't know shakespearean prose or write a novel in that language it just means that you've got the bare bone basics to to utilize the language for for whatever you want to use it for and that's kind of the way we see political literacy because we're not here to teach you about mad levels of political theory or, or what they teach at university if you want to go and do that that's on you and by all means go do it but we believe everyone should have should be literate in the politics that run our country and what we mean by that is the bare bone basics that um that uh our, our system is made up of so understanding for instance what is first past the post for westminster elections uh, understanding what devolution means, understanding what your local council does, how to, how do we elect our councillors, um, how to become a councillor if you want to be, um, what is an MP, what's the difference between the House of Commons and the House of Lords, how does a bill become a law, what is the role of the monarchy, all of those kind of legal frameworks that make up our democracy, we class as political literacy. And we think that that, that is something that everybody, no matter what you become, should have a basic knowledge in because all of us have the right to vote, campaign, uh, have a say in public inquiries, all of these kind of things that make up our democracy, we all have a right to be engaged with. Um, but that means that the state has a duty to teach us how these things work. I don't, there's no point just giving us access to these things if we don't know how many of them work. Um, so that's what we mean by political literacy. It's the almost apolitical side of politics. Because first of all, the post isn't left wing or right wing. Understanding our laws are created isn't left wing or right wing. You're not indoctrinating anyone by teaching them how the system works at this current moment. Mm. When it changes, then obviously we'd have to change the curriculum to to fit with what's being taught at the time. But it's about at this moment, how does our democracy function and what legal frameworks are there that make it function? And then within that, we also teach media literacy. And media literacy is how to critically analyze the information we receive be it online, offline, news, radio, podcasts, etc. How do we, how are we able to critically analyze what we receive and not believe everything at face value just because it fits with our bias? Um, so understanding bias, understanding um, uh, misinformation, what is misinformation, understanding disinformation, malinformation, and being able to better navigate um, the information landscape at this current moment and not being caught out 
um, say, by the 5G conspiracy, which is casually doing the rounds during COVID, for instance. Like being able to critically <laughs> analyze those bits is is really important. Um, and we class that as being like, you need to have politically literate, but also media literate citizens for a democracy to thrive and and survive properly. Yeah, the 5G thing is hilarious. <laughs> really, I mean, it? Jesus, <laughs> we ended up, um, I was really interested um, in understanding a bit more because we, we got commissioned to do a load of bits around specifically COVID misinformation. So we created a bunch of infographics, a podcast as well, uh, with journalists across across the globe. And um, we ended up creating a bunch of infographics around uh, COVID-inspired misinformation and how to help spot it, basically, and how to better understand where to get good information. So going to The Who, NHS England, et cetera, et cetera. And I was really, really curious to learn more about this conspiracy. So I managed to track someone down that was spreading this and selling helmets that are supposed to protect you from the COVID 5G rays. I ended up speaking to him for over an hour and all my life, this guy was off his trolley. Like, I don't know how else to describe it. <laughs> it was just mental. Like the stories. Um, yeah, I mean, it, it, there was, there was God, I mean, God was involved, um, Judgment Day, all the good biblical things. Mm. Um, uh, he talked about how he spread his misinformation and, of course, the, the, the essentially bicycle helmets that he probably got from China for about $2, which he's now selling for $500, obviously. Mm. Um, but, yeah, it was just, it's just incredible. Well, people do believe it. People genuinely believe it. And we had, like, 20-something masts get burned down in the UK because of it. What? Which, yeah, 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 yeah. 20, uh, 20 uh, phone, ma- not phone masks. Was it phone masks? Well, it'd be 5G, or well, yeah. would it be 5G, uh, 5G. masks? Well, yeah. a lot of them weren't actually 5G masks. They were just uh, masks. Yeah, that people just thought, yeah. And actually, it was a, it's a global phenomenon, because even with the journalists that we interviewed, a load of them said that they had experiences. So one guy in Cyprus, for example, told this story, this journalist in Cyprus, about um, they had their first supposed 5G mask get burned down. Um, this, this, is, this is maybe like a m- month ago now. Um, but the funniest thing was that it was a 4G mast that was there for about 20 years. And um, the Cypriot government don't have plans of bringing 5G into the country yet. And yeah. I mean, then, it was, yeah. It's like five countries in the world or something, something around that actually had like working 5G masts when COVID started. I'd like, yeah. I love, and I mean, like I, I will, I will listen to anyone talk about any conspiracy theory because i just like find the (laughs) mindset like fascinating and i find that like there's always some truth somewhere to learn something um and for the 5g covid like conspiracy thing it just honestly shows me the lack of trust like the widespread lack of trust that people have in our government and elected officials to tell them the truth like, that's all it speaks to me about is just, like, how, how much people will just not believe anything that they say at this point. Um, yeah, it's it's crazy. You mentioned The Who. I'm really curious. Like, do, do you yeah, still see ahead. do you still see them as, like, a an impartial, um, like, uh, arbiter of, of facts, given they're, like, the, the whole Taiwan situation where they basically won't, won't recognize that Taiwan exists and dealt really well with coronavirus because China don't want them to a- admit that it exists. 
Like, do you think that compromises them at all or, or not? Like, like you, you could say no, but I... I... No, I mean, <laughs> I, I, I don't think it does compromise them. I think we need to recognise that international law and uh, big supranational bodies mean nothing if national governments don't support them. And that's the fundamental problem. Like, the who's going to get a lot of blame and has been getting a lot of blame for, say, COVID... But the reality is, is that these organizations are only there by the good graces of massive superpowers like the US, China, Russia, etc. And if they don't want to play ball, there is absolutely nothing that these massive um, organizations can do. I mean, we think of the UN and the WHO as these big organizations with a lot of clout and power. They don't. The WHO's mm. budget is tiny in, in comparison to what countries have. Um, and they rely heavily on countries playing ball. Um, China didn't. The US isn't. In fact, the US is withholding money up until uh, a couple of days ago. I can't, I don't, have, I they, have, they released, have they released the money now? I don't know. Because um, I was, I was under the impression they had basically just like said, nope, no, we're not, we're not going anywhere near that. Just like in pure Trump fashion, that yeah, might be yeah. complete bullshit. But that's what he said. Like, <laughs> yeah, you know, and, and a lot of that, a lot of stuff that comes out of Trump's mouth, you got kind of got a question. But um, I think, and, and it, I think with with. With all of these international organizations, it, it it bears remembering that they are only as powerful as the national governments allow them to be. And the only way we're ever going to have a good UN or a powerful WHO is when international was when national organizations, the national governments, start to give up power um, in a similar fashion to what happened with the EU. Um, but I just don't see that happening in our lifetime, especially with the move towards um, nationalism, the move towards uh, far right extremism. You, I just I just don't see that happening, um, especially with countries like the UK, which are leaving the EU. Um, but but it's, just take our place in the global Britain and, and you know. all of that, all of that, all of that utter nonsense. Yeah. Um, but um, but yes, I mean, yeah, I. You know, the best example I can give with with understanding that, if you look at the UN, um, the fact that they've got a security council with some countries having permanent seats in it just shows you the arbitrary nature of the UN. It's a body that was created by certain countries um, for a good cause, and it's done, an, it's done amazing good around the world, um, especially in terms of vaccinations and so forth. Mm. Uh, the UN does most of them globally. Um but in terms of dealing with pandemics, they can only deal with them um, when national countries play ball. Mm. And for the pandemic, they didn't. You know, the US played a massive blame game. China refused to acknowledge it was a problem mm. um, up until the last minute. Um, and if those countries don't want to play, then, then, then the who can't do anything. There's so many things about the pandemic that we we won't get a grasp on, like the effects or causes for at least six, twelve, eighteen months from now, and it's 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 going to be fascinating to to see who was who was right when they were stabbing in the dark. But, yeah, <laughs> um, yeah, completely. But to to move back to kind of British politics, <laughs> um, as much as I would love to talk about that all day, um, the. The thing that you're interested in is getting like a youth voice for 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 people out there with Shout Out UK and educating mm-hmm. people, as as you mentioned. Now there was a lot of talk since 2015, especially within the Labour Party, um, about the role that Jeremy Corbyn had in galvanising the youth vote and bringing out young people 
to in in a way that had apparently never been done before and that they they were going to turn out in record numbers and then it didn't really happen <laughs> um like they were all there was it's not uh, it's not just that it didn't happen the conservatives got a landslide yeah but like in 2017 the the the, the corbyn like surge was actually led by people in their 30s and 40s who had mm-hmm. become just like completely disillusioned with the Tories. It wasn't because of this massive spike of, of young people going out to vote. And honestly, do you think that there is a way, like aside from compulsory voting, that would get young people to turn out in the same levels as people over the age of 30, 40, 50? Because it's like Jeremy Corbyn was to me the most like inspiring figure for young people in politics for a long time for a long, really long time like whether you like back his platform or whether you think he was it was the real deal is irrelevant like what he did was like bring in hundreds of thousands of of, of young people into the labor party into momentum uh-huh. and into politics and yet the youth vote basically didn't change at all is there uh, the, for me that was like the perfect storm of everything that you could get together into both 2017 and 2019 mm. for the potential for this huge like uh, upset where you get youth turnout rates of like 65 70 75 percent but it was just nowhere to be seen mm. do you think no, there's a way to, to change that i mean yeah i mean two things on that i mean one with with jeremy corbyn i mean he he was definitely an interesting character. Um, and he stood for a lot of really interesting policies. Um, a lot of policies that I, I personally agreed with myself. Mm. Um, the one, I mean, you know, Labour Party was the biggest um, political party in Europe whilst he was uh, in power, I believe. About really? The biggest million, in Europe? Yeah. It was half a million, or, or the biggest, biggest uh, party in the EU, I believe. Um, more, more, more accurately, and it had about just over half a million members. Well, they claimed to have over half a million members. Yeah, I think that at one um, point they were claiming there was up to six hundred and fifty thousand people. Yeah, um, I think they included trade union membership as well in some of those figures, but I'm not a hundred percent. Believe so, but don't don't quote me on that. Um, but the one thing that we've got to remember with Jeremy Corbyn is that for a lot of people, he represented change. And actually, there's this interesting comparison between Donald Trump and Jeremy Corbyn that a lot of people may not necessarily agree with his policies per se, but he represented a step away from the mainstream. And for the because the mainstream didn't hasn't worked for a lot of people, um, regardless of what that change is, they would rather go for that change and try something new than stick with the ordinary. Mm. The trouble is that that can only get you so far. And what that does is that it'll engage people that are incredibly um, aligned with, say, your policy or incredibly angry but still politically active. What it will not do is engage the vast majority of people that are still massively disenfranchised. Because you're thinking of, you know, let's say 600,000 members is a lot of members. If you consider the, the voting population of the UK, that's a blimp. Mm. And that's, I think, what people often forget is that, yes, there was a massive surge in people joining Momentum, joining the Labour Party, but in comparison to how many voters there are in the UK, it's actually a very, very small amount. And the only way that we're going to improve youth voter turnout and turnout in general, because our turnout is terrible, um, like about 50% of the population do not vote. 
So no government can claim that they represent the British people because they do not. Boris Johnson's government, for example, yes, they won um, the most votes out of people that voted, but they do not represent the British people because the majority of people do not vote. That's not necessarily Boris Johnson and the Conservatives' fault, but there is a problem within our society. And the only way you're going to solve that is by two things. One, bringing political literacy into schools and teaching it as a statutory subject that everyone has access to. Every country, and the Scandinavian countries are the perfect example of this, Denmark teaches politics in school. In fact, I remember we had a um, two schools from Denmark join us. Um, they, they came over for something that they were, the, that they were doing with an organisation called UK Youth. And they came and visited some of our sessions, these kids. And they were shocked that these 14, 15-year-old kids in Denmark were shocked that British people did not care about the about the voting system. And they were even more shocked that they didn't have a clue about how our political system worked. Because for them, it's normal. It's just like a part of life. And the second thing is to remove voter registration. Because registering to vote ensures that you cancel a lot of people out of um, being able to vote. Because putting that hurdle in automatically tells you that the people that aren't politically literate or that weren't given the chance to go to a private school and therefore get some form of political education will probably not know they need to register to vote and therefore probably won't bother, which is exactly what's happening. Like the, if you look at the percentage of people registered and therefore voting, BAME communities, young people, private renters, and those of the lowest socioeconomic background are the ones that vote and therefore register to vote the least. Um, so it's not just a problem of lack of voting in the UK, but it's also a problem that actually we've got a small portion of society, i.e. the ones that are better off and privately educated, that have a much bigger voice than they should in a country with the, with the population makeup of the UK that it is. Um, and the only way, like one leader is not going to solve this. We need systematic change in those two forms, bringing political literacy into schools and putting an automatic opt-in voter registers at the moment someone gives birth the moment a kid is born they're automatically registered by the government system and then they can opt out if they want to but they're automatically registered at birth which is again what every scandinavian country does i mean if you look at denmark their voter turnout um is at between 75 and 80 percent really that's that's Mm -hmm. and that's and that's what we can have as well uh, if we taught people how this system works and also how politics affects them. What age would you start teaching kids political literacy? As young as possible. I'll teach them from primary school. From primary school? Mm-hmm. Bare bone basics, nothing nothing too heavy. Um, but just the idea of basic understandings of democracy. Um, you know, giving them a bit of a say in small things in the classroom. It could be. It doesn't have to be anything major that will affect teaching. Just really small things to get them to understand what democracy looks like. And then introducing it slowly, more heavily as the years progress and as, 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 they, go, as they go up in years. Because also the big problem that I have with, with British education is that we're taught to listen and regurgitate from authority. So this idea of um, you voicing your opinion or debating isn't really instilled in most schools, unless you're lucky enough to be in a school that teaches a debating society or debating club of some kind. Um, The main thing you learn from school is to listen to authority, i.e. the teacher in this case, 
suck in information, don't ask too many questions that aren't relevant to the exam because they'll ignore them, and then regurgitate for the exam. And if you do that, you're going to pass, which fine for school is fine. But the problem is that you're instilling the idea of blind obedience to authority, which is partly problematic because in a democracy, that's not how it works. You're meant to debate, discuss, voice your opinions, and then the majority rule goes, which is not something that's ever mentioned or referenced in British education in any way, shape or form, which is why if you bring in political literacy, that will stave that balance a little bit. Mm. That's interesting. Like, I definitely, definitely got to gotta say, I, I'd, I'd be curious to see, like, what pushback you would get from people uh, when you're saying primary school, we're going to educate them about politics. I get the feeling that there's definitely some portion of society that'd be uncomfortable with that idea. There's a portion of society that's uncomfortable with us teaching in secondary schools already. Okay, well that. Um, <laughs> um, well, maybe maybe they're concerned that if you start letting children vote on things in a classroom at a young age, that then you'll just get like an entire generation of people who are all for you know localized direct democracy, and then uh, all power of a federal or or you know central government starts to dissipate out to the the local. It's a slippery slope. I'm telling you, you know. <laughs> 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 democracy is a slippery slope yeah. and everyone will have a say like funny enough i was actually i was watching gladiator last night and, and thinking quite a lot about about the about just the the republic idea and giving rome back to the people so it was it always feels mildly fitting to be discussing this now <laughs> um, beautiful film by the way oh great film like honestly it, it, it you know one of the things i was i was thinking about when i saw it was given that we're in the middle of this moment of like cancel culture and censorship mm. and everyone like reevaluating like people of the past and and Marcus Aurelius is is the the emperor who who dies at the start of that film sorry spoilers mm. you know it's it's an old film um, if you haven't seen it by now, then yeah, exactly. what have you been doing with your life? Yeah, but Marcus Aurelius is like held up outside of that film as this fantastic like stoic philosopher and one of like the wisest men to have ever lived um, to some people. Like I've just finished reading a book on stoicism with loads of fantastic stuff from Marcus Aurelius in it. And I'm, I'm really looking forward to trying to find um, his meditations in some form that's like slightly more digestible than just the original. But uh he oversaw an empire that like conquered brutally and enslaved people and like he still held up as this like wonderful like just virtuous courageous leader and it it just made me i was i was just thinking like how do we how do we define what we deem as acceptable uh, given like historical context of of what is there and it was i don't know it was just rolling around in my mind i was like if would is marcus aurelius a bad person because he he like oversaw an empire with slaves even though he's like inspired loads of people to be much better people like i just i find the, the would he be cancelled is my question um i mean <laughs> i mean there's it's two quite interesting points there i think with i mean with marcus aurelius it's i think so far removed from what we perceive as society now mm. but then like something that i find like the, the roman empire was very close in in many 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 ways to like the 
the society we live in now okay minus technology and a bit more hygiene but societally they had like a fairly similar structure to us for for a fair amount of time so i don't think it's like as far removed as you would imagine given that it was two thousand years ago and they were having the same debates that we are now about democracy and philosophy Mm -hmm. and 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 traversing that the, the landscape of of like a multicultural society like those were all things that the romans had to deal with so I, I I don't think that it's that different. But sorry, continue. <laughs> no, 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 no. I, I think I think to some extent you're 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 definitely right. Um, their I mean their mentality around um, certain issues like slavery, for example, mm. um, like um, oh, shall we? It's it's well, what are you doing on the weekend? I'm popping over to see two people kill each other or a couple of Christians getting eaten by lions. Do you know what I mean? Like the, yeah. <laughs> the ideas of brutality were, were very, very different back then. Mm. And aside from the Romans, the you know, the Persians were doing it, the Greeks were doing it pre the Romans. Mm. Um the Egyptians, I mean Christ, they they definitely um use slavery. So this this concept I think is interesting. Um, but looking at the global context, I think what's what's potentially more interesting is the way we um, really idolise and venerate our our own UK monarchy, when actually they um, looked over slavery mm. um, and actually instigated it to to, to a large extent. Um, but we don't ever. I mean, we you know we're taking down statues of slavers and good, but the monarchy seem untouchable. Um, and that's something that no one's ever questioned. And you're not going to look at a British monarch that presided that period. So names escape me, but they're they're, they're not going to get cancelled or, or blacklisted or anything else because they're going to look at it. Oh, they did the Industrial Revolution. Let's forget about where the Industrial Revolution came from and what and, and the reason why Britain got so wealthy. But the reason why I think that's um, more interesting, at least for me, was because Britain was one of many colonial powers that were doing slavery, but not every country in the world was doing it. And there was a much bigger discussion at that point around freedom of people, around democracy and so forth. Whereas in those classical times, slavery was just the norm for almost every country, well, country. Mm. They weren't quite countries. Nation, back then, empire. Their nation, yeah, empires. Every single empire was, was at it. Um, and... It wasn't so much based on race as it was more based on, well, we've conquered you, so therefore you're our slaves. It was a slightly different mentality, whereas in the colonial era, it was industrial. It was like the systematic capturing of people to expand an economy, Mm. which makes it, I think, slightly different. And why I think with the idea of Marcus Aurelius, although it's so far in far removed from reality and I, I do get your point you know of actually there are similarities and there definitely are but there are also a lot of differences mm. whereas you know if you think of it the conversation especially with with black lives matter for example or or the the removal of slaver statues and so forth it's a lot closer to home and there are people that know of ancestors that were slaves like this is not that far away we think it is but it actually really isn't and it's directly affecting our economic structures now, whereas what Rome did back then is not so impacting of our economic structures now, I'd say. And it's not, you know, Romans, I don't know, enslaving the 
well, some portion half, of Egypt yeah. or Namibians at the time is not the reasons why there is institutionalized racism in the UK, for example, or, or the reason why some people are are better off economically than others, because it is so far removed from our economic reality now, uh, which is why I think there's a slight difference. Although you're right, you know, mm-hmm. philosophically, there were there were a lot of very, very similar, similar discussions. And on your point about cancellation, um, I don't know. I've always, I've always had a bit in censorship. I've always had really kind of mixed views on this because I don't think mm. anything should be off the table. Exactly. Um, I think we need to learn. <laughs> God. I was just going to say, I'm. I, I any any kind of censorship makes me uncomfortable because I, I. I agree. I just feel that in in the way we were joking about the slippery slope of education, <laughs> um, it's like for me the, the censorship is legitimately. Um, a slippery slope and I feel that you can you can tell people not to say things you can mm. you can condemn them for it you can say the worst things about them but you can't just like make it illegal to say anything I mean short of screaming fire in a crowded um, cinema like, mm. <laughs> like yeah no I, I, I agree and, and actually it's um, and, and I get why this is a problem um, one because again debating isn't taught in in schools, um, unless you go to a top-end private school, in which case you will get taught it. Mm. Um, but this, 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 this idea of cancellation or um, you know boycotting or whatever else. Um, oh, but boycotting's different. That, that, no, I know. That, that's um, I, I'm fine with anyone. Anyone wants to boycott anything? Like that's que- I, I'm in the middle of several boycotts. <laughs> of, of um, really disappointingly some of my favourite places in Belfast that, that sacked all their staff at the start of furlough instead of instead of waiting for the furlough system to, to or the furlough scheme oh, wow. to come in they just flat out sacked them and and I know some of I believe the tightest businessmen in the world having worked for a few of them and they all managed to keep their staff on and these places that are really successful and, and some of my were some of my favorite places to go um treated their staff very badly so i'm, I'm boycotting well, i often I often think that actually furlough um well when people when, when some companies were sacking people because of covid i often wonder how many of them have been waiting to get rid of that person or those people for a while and covid just gave them the perfect excuse no, um, there's definitely gonna there's definitely been a big like clearing of house like it just and there it's still to come as well like we haven't seen half oh, yeah. half the redundancies that's coming oh, yeah. october 31st when that furlough scheme ends <laughs> yeah no completely completely but that but that, that i mean that that was that was um completely my point I, I, there there is a massive um difference but often people lump them in the same way um and with boycotts i uh, as you said i completely agree um boycott anything you want that's based on your values and that's another form of democracy you know instead of using your vote you're using your bank account to decide with who to shop for or or who to shop with rather uh, based on their practices um by all means but censoring and you know this kind of like no platforming at universities or things like that i'm always a bit uneasy about because the fact is that these conversations are happening people have these beliefs um they just do People have these um, beliefs that are racist, that are biased towards people, that are xenophobic towards others. Mm. And you refusing to give them a platform, you refusing to um, debate with them only makes their voice stronger, in my view, because they're always going to have an outlet. If you know platform, they're always going to have another outlet. They will end up on ITV. They will end up on social media. 
Um, they will end up writing for the sun and calling people cockroaches, for example. I don't know if you might know who I'm yeah. essentially leaning towards. Yeah, but that's... they will get a voice. Um, and you cancelling them out, all that's giving them is giving them a platform to voice their opinion with nobody on the other end fighting back. Mm. Because their opinion is inherently wrong. But if you no platform them, you're not giving the other side to voice their opinion against that person. And therefore, you're giving them a free reign to talk about whatever they want to talk about with no backlash, mm. with no um, visible debate confrontation. Um, and that gives them more power. I couldn't, I couldn't agree more. Uh, like one, one of the things, actually, that you, you mentioned there was um, you mentioned uh, that the difference when we were talking about Marcus Aurelius and, and say, mm. slavers from the colonial area was that the the problems and like things that uh, were done in the colonial area or uh, era are we're still suffering the the hangover of the consequences yeah. of those problems now that haven't been dealt with uh, i think was basically your, your your point yeah and like ultimately i think that that's something that the movement black lives matter um in america and in the the uk as well just i feel like I feel like they've 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 set their sights too low almost because uh, honestly if you're in like we we have such a fantastic moment right now like there are people engaged on on a level that have never been there's marches going on that would have never been attended in the way that there was mm -hmm. there's so much awareness people have time to think and discuss and debate about this and we're we're coming into this moment where there is going to be the potential for huge transformative change and to set your sights on removing a couple of episodes of tv shows from netflix and and all four uh, like peep show um benedorm like shows that are out there like any any like the, they were both removed because of of blackface in their in their show and and on both occasions, it's it's being used to literally show how horrendously racist and awful the character is, and it's being like used as an illustration of of how that's like not okay, and like you get that like visceral like mm. feeling from it. But it's it's illustrative of that, and and people will continue to to make like racist jokes, but you you the best way to to, to stop them is to edge like educate them and talk to them about it and be like well it's not really okay to say that and this is why this is offensive and then if they want to continue to do it like go ahead be an awful person but <laughs> um i'm just I, I get very like uncomfortable but that's not them. but that's not what the um black lives matter movement is is, is representing yeah, like, one of the issues the... becomes that there isn't like a like leaders of the movement and therefore like different wings go off and and, and like call for things to be cancelled and removed and I think they would really benefit from like a central like manifesto of like here's the things that we believe are. But they have that. They do. They do have that. So um, I mean, I'm not part of the Black Lives Matter organization. Mm. I'm not going to speak speak on their behalf. But no, no. Um, I I attended one, and um, the 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 two uh, I'm trying to remember the two main um, demands. One of the main demands is uh, police reform. Mm, okay, that that I totally um, can get on board, and with. that's something that um, both the American uh, movement and the British movement have in common. They both want police reform, obviously in a different way, because in America, 
Um, obviously, the legislation is different. Then you need to request, you know, state police reform and then federal police reform, etc. And obviously, in the UK, it's just a unitary system. So you just ask for reform from from government from from Westminster. Uh, but that's one of them. And the other one was um, around, I believe, it was around diversity. Um, but it certainly was not around, you know, removing a bunch of shows um, that have that have blackface in it. I mean, I I can understand why a couple of um, splinter branches may want to focus on that mm. as their like issue, um, but that's not what the Black Lives Matter movement is about. And in fact, I would say that a lot of the media have been trivializing it and demonizing it a lot. Mm. And again, it's a tactic by a fair few uh, people in journalism. Um, that want to demonize it because they know that that's what their readership um, respects and that's what their readership gets. I mean, the Daily Mail have probably been one of the worst for it, where they will talk about a violent movement. Um, and if you go to a Black Lives Matter protest, it is not violent. Mm. The people are not violent. In fact, one of the saddest things I remember hearing was one of the main organizers of the movement that I went to on Friday. Um, the I don't know what day it was. But it was the Friday before the Saturday one where all the um, right-wing lunatics came down and started to piss on statues and whatever else. Mm. Um, the statues that they were claiming to protect, by the way. Um, but that Friday, the march that happened on the Friday before that day, um, one of the people, one of the main organizers kept shouting, saying to um, remain peaceful if they are there, because there was a fear that Tommy Robinson supporters show up, show up on the Friday as well. Mm. They said, if they are going to be there, don't um, engage them we are not going to become a stereotype. And the stereotype that the media consistently portray is that black people are normally aggressive, black people are um, uh, normally up for a fight and all this kind of nonsense. And they were purposely trying to push away from that. What happened over the course of the weekend, of course, is that the right wing showed up on Saturday. All the papers covered the Saturday one to try and incite race riots because they were shown that there was this race riot between white nationalists and um, the Black Lives Matter protesters, not a single paper instead covered the Friday one, which was entirely peaceful. Um, and when they were talking about protesters on the Saturday one, they were talking about them interchangeably between the two movements. So if you were reading it, you couldn't tell if the person that was arrested was a BLM protester or a right-wing protester. What it turns out later on, once more information came out, is that almost everybody arrested was on the right wing movement because the right wing started a fight between themselves because they were doing they were they were all drunk by about one pm in the afternoon. That's amazing. And they were inciting the they were inciting the police. You could see all the videos and all the rest of it. And that kind of narrative is part of the problem because we're trivializing but also denigrating this movement by saying, oh, all they want to do is take off a bit of blackface on TV. Mm. But fine, if that's what a part of them want to take off, yeah, that, that stuff shouldn't be on TV. But at the same time, that's not what the major movement's talking about, which is police reform, reform, government reform, making sure that organizations, for example, release statistics on um, bigger organizations. Obviously, we're not talking about SMEs that have got four or five employees, for instance. Um, but bigger organizations to make sure that it's not that the only colored person in their executive um, group is the diversity officer, which is in most of these big companies, they hire a BAME person as a diversity officer, making sure that it's not just a tokenistic gesture, making sure that actually there are fair, um, uh, what's it called, recruitment practices in these bigger organizations to make sure that um, these communities can get economic prosperity. Um, essentially dealing with, in, uh, dealing with uh, what's it called, institutionalized racism, which is a massive problem and something that 
us as a society have, have ignored for some time. Mm. You actually touched on a really, a really important point. I think there is the, the that there is a portion of the right wing in British politics, in the press, and uh, coming from within our own number ten, Dominic Cummings, pushing the idea of like the culture war and the war on woke, which is pitting us all against each other, whilst all of the like massive problems and issues continue to go on unsolved, mm. like like simply like just just tax evasion. Flat out, just, just, we just ignore it basically, and we were, we're all, we're all too worried about fighting each other. Ironically, after we discussed it for like forty-five minutes, but about like censorship and and society and like these little like culture war things that that distract us from the fact that like uh you know the the country's being pillaged by corporations not paying their tax, like like yeah. like like a mobile for example, who put a who who made like a big thing about oh. We're going to give frontline NHS workers these fantastic like deals on their phone because that's what matters when they might die or they're mm. you know, putting their health at risk. You know, make sure you got enough data and free texts like that. That's that's what's going to help them. And but it turns out that that company is in a, currently in a dispute with HMRC over a 60 million pound of tax they haven't paid. Yeah, I, I would much rather they just paid their tax. And yeah, anyway. But, um... No, I, I agree with you, and, and actually, this is this is a really important point. I would, I agree with you. I would much rather they pay their tax and keep their um, SIM cards for themselves, rather than try and offer NHS people that they've robbed of sixty million. Um, you know, it's 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 laughable, but that's the problem. Um, I, I think one of the major fundamental problems within our our society is um, tax avoidance. And it's something that, you know, the Panama Papers showed us the extent of even, I mean, the funniest one for me was the Royal Estates being caught in it. And then as soon as the Royal Estates was caught in that, was caught in and avoiding tax, um, tax of the con- tax from the country that sh- that its owner is the head of state for, by the way, which I found hilarious. But then everyone again was rallying around the monarchy as if uh, for some reason is the answer to everything and how she wasn't involved or she didn't know and so forth. Yeah, but if we go by that narrative, then all, you know, people like Richard Branson or the owner of Leica Mobile are also exempt, surely, if you're going to have that same logic. Um, but we've just got this very bizarre thing where we care more about the kind of woke generation and calling young people the future workers of this country. We prefer denigrating them and calling them snowflakes than actually dealing with actually, you know what, we've got a taxation problem. And I wouldn't even I wouldn't even go as far as saying it's like a mobile's problem, because all that companies are meant to do is make money. The fact that they're allowed to get away with this is squarely the fault of the government. These companies are just doing what's what's legally in their interest, which they're perfectly fine in doing. It's governments that should stop them from being able to do that. Um, and it's partly to do with the problem that um, political parties get a lot of funding from private business. Well, Which makes it very, very hard to legislate around taxation because of it. I couldn't agree more. In a completely shameless uh, pl- uh, plug for my book, I do discuss um, <laughs> how we have to take all money out of politics before we can, uh, before we can, you know, improve ourselves as a country. Because electing a great party, 
you know once doesn't doesn't fix the the system as you one great leader doesn't change things as you very uh, astutely put it earlier but uh we're coming up on the end of our time so is there anything you would like to plug yourself after mine <laughs> <laughs> sure um if you are a teacher young person or parent wanting to learn a bit more about uh, political literacy or media literacy how to, uh, how to be critical about the information you receive online uh, then feel free to visit uh, our website on shoutoutuk.org uh, and the education portal is education.shoutoutuk.org um, and if you also like podcasts and want to hear some crazy stories about conspiracy theories and uh, as well as one amazing story from an Estonian uh, investigative journalist who managed to uncover state-sponsored disinformation, then have a listen of our podcast, Media Minded. I will put all the links for all the stuff in the description below for anyone who, who needs it. Um, but yeah, Matteo, that, that was a pleasure. Uh, thanks very much. No worries. Thank you so much for having me. Thanks so much for listening. If you enjoyed this episode, don't forget to subscribe to this podcast wherever you get your podcasts and to our mailing list. And don't forget, my book, Brexit, The Establishment Civil War, is now available for pre-order. Until next time, thanks for listening. <laughs>